ladies and gentlemen, your Royal Highness, and perhaps lords and ladies, welcome to CMEC's event. Please feel free to, to slink up and get more tea and coffee as we go. This is intended to be a very conversational meeting so that we get the most out of our really esteemed array of speakers here and doubtless expertise in the audience. My name's Charlotte Leslie. I used to be a Member of Parliament. I was liberated in 2017 from elected duties. I'm now Director of the Conservative Middle East Council, CMEC, which was set up 40 years ago under Margaret Thatcher to help Conservative Members of Parliament understand the region, the complex Middle East region, a little better, with a rather outrageous idea that if uh, Members of Parliament understand the world better, we can vote better on it. And uh, so please don't judge CMEC's track record by our, our, our global history, but that's the task that we endeavour to perform to this day. We're very, very grateful to be joined by a selection of extremely experienced international experts at a time of, I think we'd all agree, unprecedented global danger and global turbulence. The war in Ukraine, the illegal war conducted by Russia, Putin in Ukraine, is not only affecting Ukraine and Russia, it affects the whole world. And as we're at a conference when energy prices are top of everyone's agenda and top of every family's worry list, we see just how interconnected we are and that conflicts, bilateral conflicts like this, affect far, far more. This morning, CMEC is going to be asking, how does the Russia-Ukraine conflict affect the Middle East? and North Africa, and then how does that in turn affect the UK's relationships and alliances with this tremendously important, divided and complex region? To my left, I am very pleased to welcome this morning Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, one of the most preeminent Middle East experts in the country. Sir Simon is former Deputy Chief of Defence Staff, and he's former Defence Senior Advisor in the Mid to the Middle East, to the MOD. He's had a distinguished career across the Middle East and the Balkans, and much of this informs his new book, Soldier in the Sand, which you will have an opportunity to purchase with Simon signing it after this, over a cup of tea or coffee. Um, and it tracks recent history of the Middle East through the eyes of Sir Simon as a serving officer. Then to my right, I'm very pleased to welcome Baria Alamuddin, who in many ways needs no introduction. Baria is a renowned, award-winning international journalist, writer and author. Baria has interviewed figures from Margaret Thatcher to Fidel Castro, some of the great figures of our time, including the last interview with Benazir Bhutto before she was assassinated. Baria also has a book which I would heartily recommend, Militia State, which will also be on sale and Baria will be available to sign, which tracks the rise of sheer militia and looks at how it is eclipsing the state in Iraq and elsewhere. And then on my far, far right. on my far right, but only in terms of direction, not politics, uh, we have Dr. Zia Moral. Uh, Dr. Zia is a Turkish-British researcher and expert. He is currently Senior Resident Fellow at the UK Army's think tank, the rather niftily named Centre for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research. Zia is also a Senior Fellow of RUSI and a Turkey expert and will be talking to us about Turkey's view and involvement, both to the, pointing to the Middle East and to the UK and NATO. So first, Sir Simon, 
if I can come to you, I'm going to ask each of our guests to give about a 10-minute overview, and then I'll be opening it up to questions, and please feel free to ask questions of any of our panellists, having heard their initial opening. So, Simon, I'll come to you. How does the Russia-Ukraine crisis affect the Middle East? How is it seen in the Middle East? And how is it affecting <coughs> the UK's relationships with particularly our allies? Over to you. Well, Charlotte, thank you very much. And uh, thank to CMEC for organising this. And I really want to pay tribute to CMEC's role in continuing to get the British public, but the British political establishment, continued focus on, on the Middle East. Not least, dare I say, uh, the Gulf region in which uh, we have such a long shared history. I think long shared and successful history. And... Uh, as Trotsky once, well, to paraphrase, Trotsky once said, you know, you may not be interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East is going to continue to be interested in you. And the reality is, whatever happens, whatever fanciful predictions we find in the press about global energy and renewables and whatever, the facts of life are that the Middle East will remain absolutely vital to the continued prosperity of, of the globe. And uh, could we continue to have 80% of energy generated by fossil fuels, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, oil and gas, uh, although we're stepping away, although the Americans are trying to get independence, and hence the, you know, if you're not interested, you know, you're going to be interested in you. 50, 60% of the oil still remains in reservoirs, reserves in the Middle East, 40% of gas, 2 billion more people about to be added to the, or about to be, in historical terms, about to be added to the world's population, and no scenario that says we can, we can go away from that. The key in the Middle East, like any government, any state, is, of course, security. Uh, and where the Middle East feels that its old allies and partners don't provide security, they will quite rightly look in other directions. Uh, and uh, we think particularly of China. Now, there's no doubt about it. The, the events of the 24th of February and the next few weeks to challenge certain assumptions about which way friends across the Middle East, and of course, use the term the Middle East is a very lazy expression. It's quite useful, of course we know. But the reaction of Egypt and, the, and North Africa is very different. The consequences of the Russia-Ukraine conflict in terms of energy and grain are going to be different. The attitude of Turkey is clearly going to be very different in itself, uh, its own geopolitical regional status. The interesting, almost neo-Ottoman foreign policy it's been pursuing over the last you could call it 20 years since Erdogan's been in power. Clearly Iran, very influenced by the Ukraine-Russia, uh, I think had banked on a rather different outcome to the current crisis in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and I know Bari is going to talk about, sadly, the opportunities that we in the West afforded to Iran to interfere across the whole region uh, as a result of the way we mishandled the occupation of Iraq and then various other uh, issues over things like the Obama red line in Syria, withdrawal from Kabul, Trump, you name a number of things. So when we come back to assessing the reaction of friends this year, we've got to put it in the context of 20 years to an extent of disappointment uh, with Western decision-making, disappointment in, in, in uh, credibility of the West on that side. And sorry, so that's Iran. And then, of course, we come back to our close, very close allies in the Gulf region. I've just come back from Saudi Arabia. I was in Riyadh. I was at the International Book Fair there. And again, it's amazing how stereotypes continue. But we have about 200,000 Brits who live 
in the Gulf states. And many of you among them, many of you have visited, many of you we lived and worked there. So our relationship there is really deep and our commitment there is deep. We have a deep requirement as a country post-Brexit. Let's not go into the politics of that. The reality of it, though, is Britain needs to remain global. Uh, the Middle East, and particularly the Gulf, is an area where we need to remain engaged. The stability of the Gulf is vital for the globe. It's as vital for us as it is, frankly, for China. Going to Saudi Arabia, um, it's extraordinary how they're driving ahead. For those of you who know Dubai, Doha, Muscat probably, um, but certainly the Emirates, uh, Bahrain and Doha, you'd be ex ex extraordinary what's happening in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there's no doubt about what's happening in Saudi Arabia is having a huge influence on the other side of the Gulf in Iran. And maybe Bahrain will talk about that and we may come back to it. But the new reform movement in Iran is very influenced by the reformist movement, the very aggressive reformist movement in Saudi Arabia. And if you have old-fashioned stereotypes about Saudi Arabia, I strongly advise you to get on a flight, get your visa within five minutes and go out there to find it for yourself. But it's, this is important. When the war broke out on the 24th of February, I think we all could imagine a scenario in which Zelensky was dead or out of the country, where there was now a puppet government in uh, Kyiv, where we had had a victory parade in Moscow, where the, frankly, the Donbass was now in, you know, to all intents and purposes, as, as it had been under sham referenda, anchored to the motherland, the Rodina, and basically, Russia joined up all the, all the lands that basically took off of the Carnate of Crimea in the late 18th century. So that's the Donbass all the way through Mariupol, down to the Crimea, through Kherson, into Odessa and across to, to Moldova, and a sort of, you know, the Russian Mir. And I think that did influence, of course, people's assumptions. The West was looking weak. I'm afraid Biden didn't appear to be giving a very strong leadership role to Western powers. Uh, the European Union had its own problems. We had our own issues, you know, culture wars, you name it. It's unsurprising that our friends across the world, I say our friends, countries across the world, hedged their bets. They looked at the authoritarian regimes of China and Russia. They looked quite, you know, I wouldn't say the voice of the future. I don't think either of them offer a, a sort of mode of living or understanding that our Gulf friends or the Arab world or the Middle Eastern world wishes to emulate, but undoubtedly, you know, the geostrategic links may be there still to the West, but the geoeconomic links get stronger and stronger to the East. And we all, I think, or many of us, assumed that we would be presented with a fait accompli. So people did sit on the fence. They were worried, as we all were, about the consequences in both grain and fuel. Everything's focused on fuel at the moment, fuel, energy, supplies, but we have yet to see the full impact of grain. Hence, interestingly, of course, the consequences of the war in Ukraine have been to drive energy prices up, which, of course, have led to a huge transfer of wealth once again from the developed world into the Gulf states. However, if you're an Egyptian, hence I say we've got to be very careful about saying the impact on the Middle East. If you're an Egyptian or North African, the impact of rising oil prices and potentially restrictions on grain supplies, which we've yet to fully see or, or, or see the impact of, uh, are, are really, really worrying. As I said, at one stage for Iran, life must have looked, this is quite good. We, we're going in the right direction. We're dominating in, in Baghdad. We've, we've supported the Assad regime alongside the Russians. 
Uh, the Russians have looked bloody reliable, they've looked competent, you know, they've tested their new weaponry on the battlefield, it's looking really impressive, uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, we, 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 we're backing, backing the right side. That, of course, now on the 4th of, uh, the 4th of October is not looking like such a good bet. So I think between the 24th of February and the 4th of October, uh, sentiment moves uh, quite rightly. You know, everybody looks to where their self-interest lies. Uh, and uh, we are still in a crisis point. We may yet come back to that. We don't know where the Ukraine war is going to you know, expand to. Uh, the nuclear threshold looks lower than it was. Um, you know, various reporting at the moment. Uh, the nuclear threshold, of course, is something we've not taken our eyes off, but we forget is, or can forget, sorry, um, is, is an important part of the whole dynamic in the Middle East. Um, the whole issue of the GC power in Iran, uh, the ongoing talks between the Americans and the Iranians over trying to get the, uh, the nuclear file back in some sort of box, uh, much to our the annoyance of, I know, of our Sunni Arab allies. It's not including the malign influence of uh, Iran across the region. It's not including the ballistic missiles. But the nuclear issue, as it pertains to Ukraine, is also equally worrying in the Middle East. And we worry about Iran going nuclear and what would that would set off uh, in terms of an arms race with Saudi Arabia, uh, possibly Egypt, certainly Turkey, because these are you know, people drawing their own conclusions. And so I think at the moment we are at a real, a real junction point. I think if the West remains united, if the West shows it has the capacity to take the pain to absorb the consequences of imposing sanctions and then the counter-sanctions, as it were, in terms of energy and grain coming our way, if the British and the British, uh, Western publics can remain uh, firm in their purpose of, the, of facing down aggression, then I think countries, again, across the Middle East, and it's widened that, we know it's in India, we know it's Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, but important for us uh, in the Middle East region is the, you know, that our friends look to us as reliable and competent again. I think there's a great role for Britain. I think uh, the Americans are weary, as we know. Part of the problems we've had in the last 20 to 20, 10 to 20 years has been American failures that have led to weariness, that have led to withdrawal. Our capacity to leverage our position in the Gulf as, as, as British government, British state, uh, in order to take up some of the heavy lifting to contribute to the security of a region that's so important, which I think is, is important. Uh, and we need the confidence of a British government, any British government, uh, to lean back into uh, friendly areas where we have huge direct and indirect interests. And uh, so it's a time of opportunity, it's a time of danger, um, but it's a time where Britain, again, should be looking to its, uh, its, its long-standing uh, reputation, credibility, friendships, in order to do whatever we can to manage stability and security in the Gulf, which inevitably, like everything else, is threatened by the current consequences of the uh, Iran uh, of the uh, uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. Thank you. So, Simon, thank you very much. You talked largely about the Gulf. You mentioned Iran. Baria, I wonder if I can ask you to talk us through the Iranian angle on this um, and how the Russia-Ukraine war has affected Iran and its influence in the region. Baria. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, Your Royal Highness. I'm very happy to be here with you today. I'm grateful to CIMAC and, of course, to Charlotte and to Mark for the hard work they did to have this being realized. 
I, I am Lebanese, British, and I've been living in this country for 40 years. I love Lebanon very much, but I do love England extremely, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities it has given me and my children. So I do care, and I do follow what's happening, and this is why I would like you to allow me to be blunt today about our role and what we are doing in that area. So I have the edge of the British, if you like, and the love, but also I know the Middle East extremely, extremely well. And I, I would like to say something uh, before I start. We in the Middle East are, I'm going to wear my, my Lebanese hat now and my Middle Eastern hat. We are always weary of being told we love you because you have oil or because you have, gas or because we are also humans like the Ukrainians and we would like to be treated for that aspect first and then whatever we have. Of course as Lebanese we're very proud of our history, of our culture, of what we have given to the world and uh, also uh, I, I would like to say this is one of the main angles in the Middle East today uh, which is the way Ukraine has been treated and the way a conflict like Syria or Lebanon or indeed the long-standing conflict in Palestine. I wouldn't call it a complex it, uh, a conflict, it's much more than that and you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, but the fact is the war in Ukraine has affected the Middle East in many ways. And I will zoom on the angle that Charlotte uh, asked me to, to do uh, because I just published a book about uh, the militias in Iraq. And, and I am Lebanese, so I have the ultimate evil of these militias, which is called Hezbollah. And uh, uh, we, we are in Lebanon are very unfortunate. We have the sea, and then we have Israel, and then we have Syria. But the main evil inside now is really what Iran and Hezbollah are, are doing to the country. We literally a failed state today. In, in the Middle East, the effect of the Ukrainian war has been a, a very complex and a very difficult one. Because although I, I went to an American school, I studied at the American University, I have a partly American family, I just spent a month in, in the States, I feel estranged from the Americans uh, in, in many ways. And I, I, I talk regularly to people in the administration, especially Robert Mali, who's running the, the nuclear issue. It's shameful the way we stand today in the world. Uh, and, and Britain is not diff very different from what the Americans are doing. So here we are uh, opening our hearts and minds and, and houses for the Ukrainian refugees. And when they reach, reach Hungary or in, in, in this country, oh no, no. No, the, the, the Syrians are not allowed, and uh, or the Lebanese or whoever, but the Ukrainians are, are blonde and, and Christian or whatever it is. We have to stop that. We, we, we humans have to treat each other equally, because it's, in this day and age, it should not be permitted. It's not how I look or, 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 or what language or... The pain is the same, the love is the same, so we should uh, do this. So there is this deep feeling in the Middle East 
amongst the people, the population, that, ah, here we are. Look at the Ukrainians, how the world has rushed to their aid while the, the, the Syrians are being slaughtered. But the Syrians are being slaughtered by the Russians and also by the Syrians. So this is why you see a completely different attitude between governments and the people. So the governments are confused in the Middle East and in the Gulf as well. Although they are very pro-American, very pro-Western, it's the history of the area. When it comes to uh, Russia and China, there is a great understanding and there is fear that our friends in the West including this country, of course, are not going to stand by us. We, we cannot trust them. They didn't stand by us. Biden called the, uh, Saudi Arabia a pariah state, and then he went and begged uh, quite recently, uh, shamelessly. Uh, so we, we, we need to look at these things from a perspective of people living in the, in the area. It's not only the way we look. As far as Iran is concerned, I'm extremely concerned at the way we deal with Iran, and specifically in this country as well. We, we let Nazanin uh, uh, stay in, in the jail for how many years while we, we collect our, our collect, you, you know, what we do, what do we do with her, we give them the money, we don't give them. Every penny you give Iran goes to the militias, and what the militias do is create failed states. Everywhere, Iran is found in the Middle East, a, a failed state is created. This is apart from messing up the whole fabric of society. Uh, I grew up in Lebanon and I grew up in, 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 in you know, I went to church for nine years and Sunday school. I, I'm born a Muslim. But my grandfather, who was a judge, said, when they told him she will go to church and Sunday school, he said, the, the word of God is the same. Let her be, it's fine, there is no problem. Now they play on the Shia, Sunni aspect. It's the same, it's the same God for everyone. And, that, and this is being taken to all levels in the, in the Middle East. And we sleep with Iran, we, 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 we cater to them, we, 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 we love them, we, we give them. And this is how, by the way, Russia got to Ukraine. It's because we, we made deals with the devil, with Putin, we, we catered for him, we loved him, we, we, we invited him. I, I remember meeting Putin in, in this country. We need to name things, we need to look at them directly in the eye and face them and name, name them as, as, as they are. Economically, the conflict has impacted the Middle East. Of course, in, in Lebanon, uh, we are in dire state. Uh, Lebanon is known as this small, very small, beautiful country. We're overwhelmed by, by refugees. We have the Libyans, we have the Algerians, sorry, we have Libyans, we have Yemenis, we have, of course, uh, the Palestinians that have been there 70 years and we treat them in Lebanon extremely badly. We have about two million refugees. The initial number of people, the Lebanese, are three million. We have more refugees now in Lebanon than the Lebanese themselves. All right? So, so the, the Ukrainian conflict economically impacted the whole area, less the Gulf region because they have the oil, they have the money, they are, it's the fastest growing economy. I am preparing a book about Saudi women 
and I tell you what a joy. I've been, I started this uh, five years ago. Unbelievable what's happening in these five years to, to Saudi women. They're, they're not walking, they're flying. And I'm not saying this because it's, of course, it's not all a good story, but mainly a good story now. It, it has turned. And we, as, as Simon said, we have these perceptions about people with, with, and we do not want to change. And we sit here and we talk and they are there. We need to go, we need to engage, we need to understand. I'm afraid that the West is losing its position in the Gulf and in the area. More and more people are turning, you know, it, it fits well to have Russia and to have China. Why not? When we needed the Americans, uh, uh, Obama had his pilots in the planes ready to hit uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad when he used chemical weapons. Didn't he promise to, to do that? And then nothing happened. So we, we need to stand by our friends. We need to stand by our word. We need to understand more. And uh, the media, the, the, the media of, of Hezbollah and people like Hezbollah in the area, are hundred percent beside uh, with Russia. They give a completely different story to actually what is happening in Ukraine, uh, and 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 this is something that needs to be countered. By the way, the British government just closed the Arabic BBC, and, and not that I'm a great admirer, but still it's played a, a, some kind of a, of a role. Uh, you know what the media and how important it is. So I leave you with, with these thoughts, and, and I hope they take you somewhere. Thank you. Baria, thank you. You are never dull, and you never mince your words. So plenty of content there for discussion, I think. Thank you. Zia, over to you. Um, well, thank you. It's always great to be the last person in a panel like this. So I'm, I'm afraid I'll be very dull, but I'll be very quick so that actually we can hear from the questions that you might have and cover some of the areas. Look, I think a year made a big difference in how we see Ankara, engage Ankara, and how Ankara sees the region, NATO, its relations, um, its place in these developments. A year ago, you know, US-Turkey relations were at a historic breaking point, Biden refusing to meet with President Erdogan. Um, a lot of European states have a similar attitude. Turkey was cornered in the Middle East, in East Levant. Um, and economically, it's not doing well. The inflation rate actually this week is at 83%. Oh, so things have not been going really well for President Erdogan, and he's been looking for a way of easing, normalizing some of these key relationships. And then the crisis happened. Um, and it was really interesting to see what they would do because they've been quite consistent. Um, on, since 2014, they refused Russian um, invasion of um, Crimea. They boldly spoke against it. They provided Ukrainians with drones. Um, they even stopped. Um, some vessels coming through the Black Sea, etc. And um, but they never really wanted to go with the Western or NATO bloc in any reaction towards Russia because they need Russian engagement in Syria and they buy energy from them. There's a lot of economic touristic relationships there, and they really need the money. They need to work with Putin. So it was really interesting to see how they will handle this Gordian knot, right? So they also do not want to go with US. They're frustrated with NATO, but they need NATO. So President Erdogan is always very careful about NATO. 
what he says about it, unlike any other topic, is quite bold to say what he wants to say. Not on NATO, because it's vulnerable against Russia and actually Turkey needs NATO. So there's never been a discussion within Ankara for real whether Turkey should come out of NATO. And when the crisis happened, um, and it was amazing to see how quickly they went publicly reacting against Russia, saying, well, this is wrong, do not invade, this is not welcome, we won't accept. But at the same time, not wanting to go with the sanctions because it's got knock-on effect on Turkish economy. It's really exposed, it's really vulnerable, but also a lot of opportunities. Right? So not only now Turkey provides um, huge um, assets to Ukraine, you've seen how the Turkish drones have played an important part. There was a new deal signed this week with Ukrainian defense and Turkish defense industries on producing a new drone together. Um, Turkey just provided a naval vessel to Ukraine, Navy, and etc., and a lot that is happening there. But Turkey also saw a lot of economic opportunities with Russia being under a blockade, right? So a lot of Russians are now heading to Turkey. They don't need a visa. They can buy properties. And if you spend $250,000, you could buy a Turkish citizenship to go with your new property in Turkey, right? So you all of a sudden looking at a geopolitical opportunity bonanza and then US Treasury coming and saying, hold on a second. So all these businesses that are accommodating Russian transaction, you're facing US sanctions. That's what happened with Turkey with Iran sanctions when Iran found the amazing way of using gold purchase in Turkey as a way of bypassing sanctions on US dollar. Then Turkish businesses at a bonanza of gold trade rocketed and U.S. Treasury said, you know, this is enough, this is really not going to continue, and they faced a huge challenge. So where Ankara is now, it's a fascinating act, um, attempt at strategic independence as they frame it. So I'll disagree with Simon about you know, framing or how Ankara sees it. I don't see an ideological drive as much as a frustration with the West, but also no alliance to replace Turkey's historical relationships. I see a nation stuck and wants to be a regional dominant actor. So it observed events in Syria and it said, if I'm not in Syria militarily, nobody will listen to what I want. Um, invaded Syria and it's stuck there. In Cyprus, questions of energy in the East, again, unless I assert myself, nobody will hear the need to work with me. And it's seen its clashes, the limits of it with Saudi Arabia, with UAE, with Egypt. And for the last 12 months, they've been trying to ease it continually. Even meeting with you know the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, easing with UAE, easing even with Armenia, saying, look, you know, things are behind us now, we got to. And that's because the elections, right? <laughs> so in eight, nine months, in 2023, Turkish Republic will see its 100th anniversary, and President Erdogan enters with this uh, vision of Atatürk 2.0, a great Turkey, a great leader, and it's now borderline. So for the first time in an election in 20 years, we genuinely do not know which way this might go. Uh, it's very close either way. Um, there's obviously a human cap on how much you can be in politics, right? It's by design, not sustainable. Um, 20 years is already very long. Um, but there's so many economic problems, domestic political problems, foreign policy problems. It's run out of steam except identity politics and taking those symbolic stance. Um, but Ukraine crisis has also shown to NATO and for the UK the merits of still why we're committed to keep Turkey within NATO as even though it gets really difficult, <laughs> it gets very stressful because of the strategic positioning of the straits, because of realities of geography, but even the assets Turkey brings. Um, the NATO bases in Turkey from radars to 
AWOC jets to some $10 billion worth of NATO investment within the country. Those are really not light assets that you can just brush off in a single op-ed, right? And this is really important for their alliance. And for all of their failures, they've been consistent on that. For the UK, the bilateral relations have been growing really strongly. Um, it's been a conservative policy under multiple British governments to say, look, we know Turkey will not be in EU, but this would make sense. Uh, even now, that's still the same. I mean, yes, we were not there, but actually this would make sense. However, what mattered was that process, that closeness, that alignment, not just the end. It's a bit like the journey is the destination, not the final end. So we know Turkey will never be in the EU, but that conversation at merits. Now, no more. Um, and UK is not there, um, but the economic relationship opportunities are huge and trade is growing. And on a lot of key issues, Turkey and UK are very similar in reading of the geography, in Ukraine, even Syria, even Iraq. Um, so it gives a lot of opportunities. And the relationships kept really good, um, actually. Both sides really balanced that really calmly and carefully. Um, can UK maximize that more and to what kind of end? That will depend on what we want in the Middle East and East Med. I think one to watch out would be developments in the aging between Greece and Turkey, even it's polemical. Mm -hmm. Um, polemical things in these kind of precarious moments have a way of escalating because there are a lot of people in trigger happy in the middle of a lot of these places. Um, Cyprus question is not a frozen conflict. I think we entered a brand new phase of it, which a lot of people are in denial. And UK has assets and presence and territories in Cyprus. So what happens in Cyprus has a lot of implications for us as well too. So finding a way to contain risks with Turkey, maximizing advantages of having it close, but at the same time, knowing how to challenge it when it really contradicts or becomes polemical, I think has been a huge diplomatic test. But I think one thing we can be proud of our diplomats and government consistently has been they handled Turkey portfolio rather well. Um, and I think on the Ukraine front, again, UK and Turkey both, I think, have done a good job in playing a part in shifting um, this to another direction than it could happen. I'll end there. <coughs> Zia, thank you very much for ending on a positive note in an otherwise quite troubled landscape. Um, we're very lucky this morning to have in our audience um, his, the ambassador of Saudi Arabia to, to London, to the UK, um, His Royal Highness um, uh, Prince Khaled bin um, Bandar al Saud. Your Royal Highness, may I pounce on you for the first question, but also if you had any comments on what you've just heard and any thoughts with which you might share with our audience. Um, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, I don't suppose I have the ability to say no to your question. <laughs> and uh, as an almost seasoned uh, diplomat, uh, we're very good at talking, uh, so I'll try and keep it brief. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the CMEC for organising the panel and the panellists. That was um, enlightening, um, it was passionate, um, and I think you guys hit all the right topics um, uh, very well. Uh, there's a um, we're, there's no shortage of problems in the Middle East, um, and I'd like to highlight one more and get sort of your opinion on it, and that is population dynamics. If you look at some of the issues that we, you discussed, Simon, um, where the countries are looking for their interests, interests we come up against quite regularly, and uh, Barry, are you right, we do feel a lack of support from our allies in the West, particularly in the GCC, which has stood with its allies through difficult periods, as well as positive periods, um, sometimes to our cost. Um, 
there's a young generation in the region. It's a young generation that doesn't have the history, that doesn't look back and say, I remember when we stood with so-and-so. I remember when they stood with us. And that, I'm afraid, poses a lot of difficult questions for the leadership in the region to say, well, look, even in an absolute monarchy, you've got to follow your constituency. And if the people are saying, why are we friends with these people who don't want to stand with us? Where do we go? And how do we manage that in the region? And it's different in different places. You know, the memory in Egypt of the Western world is different to the memory in Saudi, which is different to the memory in Turkey, which is different to the memory in Morocco. Um, but it's a significant issue because we, 40% of the population in Saudi is still in school. Um, they have zero memory. Um, so I'm just wondering how you think that might play out. And by the way, this also plays a large role in how we view regional issues. The Palestinian issue doesn't resonate with the young generation the way it does with my generation and older. The relationship with Iran is different. Um, although there are less and less, there are still people in Saudi who remember Iran pre-revolution. Uh, so there, you know, there's hope there. There's a whole raft of people that only see an aggressive um, enemy when it comes to Iran. Uh, just briefly, I'm sorry to complicate things <laughs> further in a complicated region, but it'd be interesting to see how you think that might play out going forward. Your Royal Highness, thank you. I'm going to come to each of the panellists in turn to answer that, and then I'll come to you, the audience. Simon. Simon. Well, thank you very much, Royal Highness, as well. And the demographic point you make, I think, is really, really important. The median age in Western Europe is about 44, and I think the median age across the Middle East and North Africa is about 22. And there are huge, huge uh, implications there. One is obviously youth itself, and the other one is sheer numbers uh, in terms of social economic constructs that can absorb this energy. And we know where some of that energy has gone to sometimes. It's gone into Jabhat al-Nusra, it's gone into al-Qaeda, it's gone into Islamic State. We also see the way, do I say, I'm not here to be a plug for Saudi Arabia, but I'm so amazed at the changes there. We're seeing where that energy and you could say all the Gulf states, is channeled properly. It goes into education, it goes into health, it goes into people travelling, etc. And we see where it's actually about to burst out, probably, in, in Iran. Um, I think your other point is very well. We, we talked about the special relation with the Americans. And, and, you know, da, 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 da. and I always say, no, no. What's special about it is decade after decade of institutional engagement. Certainly the military, certainly the intelligence services, but any number of other emotional things. But you can't rely on emotion in, um, in, in, you know, when, when demographics have changed. And I used to say in the Gulf, you can surge troops, ships, and aircraft into the Gulf, particularly in a culture, Arabic culture, I don't want to be either patronised or generalising, what you can't surge is trust. And it's no good trying to pull the relationship out of the drawer if you've neglected it. Uh, and I think his Royal House makes a very good point. We need to demonstrate to this next generation that the relationship with the United Kingdom, I mean, very parochial here, uh, is not just something from there. We contribute to the security that allows stability, that allows reform, prosperity, and all the things we want for the people. And, and, and Bari was quite right to, I say, probably aimed at me to remind me, there's a, there are humans at the heart of all these tragedies. And we talk about Syria. I think six million displaced, every life wrecked by that. 800,000 probably killed, but you take that to Iran, uh, sorry, Iraq, you take it to Afghanistan. There are consequences. So I think, again, educating ourselves, understanding the connectivity, 
acknowledging the nuances, the different parts of the Gulf, playing to our strengths where they, where, where they happen, but be, again, be very conscious that long memories are there, but equally, because of democracy, short memories. Thank you. Faria, generational memories. Oh, God. <laughs> Briefly. Uh, uh, I, I must say I'm, I'm rather old-fashioned when it comes to the problems we have in the Middle East. For me, uh, the Palestinian issue is still in my heart, in my in my memory, in, in, in my... And I do agree with, with His Royal Highness, uh, talking to young generation, not only in Saudi Arabia, but, uh, but elsewhere. But this is not only the issue of the Palestinians as such, but, for example, Liz Truss, uh, our Prime Minister, indicated that she would like to leave, to, re to move the embassy to, uh, to Jerusalem. And I think that's a huge mistake. You underestimate, because Jerusalem also has the, the emotional, uh, 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 religious uh, part, part, which is more than just the occupation and the way they, they deal with the Palestinians in, in, in such a savage way, I must say. So there is a problem between the generations in the Middle East themselves, how they view the issues between my, my, uh, your grandparents, perhaps, and, and, and you and, and your children. Uh, issues are the same when it comes to feeling towards the West, which I tried to indicate. There's this feeling of almost divorce. So it's like two couples, they don't live anymore together. They, they don't know whether they want to come back or they don't want, or they don't know whether they just want to finalize the divorce. Uh, we are doing less as, as a nation, and the UK is doing less in the Middle East. And this feeling that the, that the Middle Eastern people and the Gulf people have, that yes, we love you simply because you serve us and you give us oil and gas, is not a feeling that, that the new generation, I think, would appreciate. Or, or even understand for that level. There is a high level of education in, in the Gulf countries and in the Middle East and, and indeed in Palestine as well. Many people in the Gulf have been educated by Palestinian or Lebanese teachers, uh, that, that especially the old generation. I think we need to pay very good attention to the young in the Middle East because they do make the majority in Saudi Arabia and in general in, in Egypt and everywhere. Uh, and, and I think we, we in this country and, and the West, if we want to be, remain married to the area or at least in some kind of a relationship, we need to work at it more from, from our end. I think your role, Hannes, what scares me is the diversity of the youth experience and views. So obviously in Saudi Arabia, in, in Bahrain, in Qatar, UAE, there is a lot more hope, possibility, momentum, change, education, opportunities. Lebanon, despair, you know, um, Turkey, a lot of people wanting to move. Syria, millions of displaced, stateless. Um, Iraq, again, is a huge question. Egypt is a huge question. You've seen Tunisia. We don't know where it might go in terms of some people are happy, a lot of people are not. And the question of extremism, which we kind of, for those of us who work in defense and security, um, it's funny how we get obsessed with one thing at what a time. You know, first we have the jihad for 20 years. It's jihad, jihad. Like, what? There's Russia, there is this, there is. No, 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 jihad. So now people are tired of jihad. So we're talking about Russia. 
and we'll get tired of it. We'll talk about China soon, which our American friends do. I think the concurrency of all these threats mean, I think Daesh has ended as a caliphate, but not as an ideology. Those networks, those militants are still there in thousands. Where do they go? What does that mean for the, the Gulf, for our, us in the region? Um, so I do worry um, the diversity of the views and extremism in multiple forms are there. Um, maybe the old understanding of Islamism, it, it one kind of related type is gone. But what comes next? Um, what comes after ISIS? Uh, Al-Qaeda was another evolution. ISIS was another evolution. What is next? Um, I, I think so. there is no clear line story of promising youth. There's a lot of disparate youth, a lot of isolated, alienated youth. I think that's a time bomb for the region. Um, some countries are doing really well, um, thinking long term, thinking what, what's next, but others are just playing it by the day or we, they're really not blessed with wiser rulers, you know, and they were just there. That's actually what I'm worried about. I mean, Turks, a lot of Turks want to leave Turkey. You know, so it's really, really sad to see, right, that you have chunks of highly educated um, Turkish doctors are now everywhere in Europe, which you never really saw before. Um, so, I, so, anyway. Yeah, I, I just want to say something about the, the Ukrainian war and the, uh, what they call themselves the jihadists, the, I call them the terrorists, of course, is they think, oh, great, the crusaders are killing each other. That's absolutely mm -hmm. fine. We, we do need to stop the going on and declaring that we have finished with Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Or, they're there, mm. and they are dangerous, and they're in Syria, and they're in Iraq. And there is this misconception. I remember when, when I was doing my book, and I was researching and talking to many generals, to many politicians, and they oh, the Sunni, the Sunni terrorists. And I said, what about the Shia terrorists, you know, Iran? Oh, no, they're not as bloody, they're not as... They're equally bloody and they're equally dangerous, if not more dangerous. What the Hashd al-Shabi or these terrorists in Iraq are doing in Iraq, they have... Metastasized uh, into a mafia, like they do drugs, they 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 destroy the, the societies, they 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 kill, uh, they, they killed more than six seven hundred, uh, uh, you know, protesters simply because the protesters wanted to eat and wanted jobs uh, uh, last year. So we need to really pay attention to these people. Actually, drug thing, Charlotte, if I may say, the captain kills, which are produced in Balkan, Syria. And Lebanon, which, we're uh, the capital yeah. of captain. And now how much, how much Saudi Arabia, Turkey, yeah. Jordan have seized for last 12 months, millions of pills. So that new drug, which is affecting so many young people, it's actually it's going to be a huge problem um, increasingly. But, but this is not done only for the money. The, 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 the Iranians think of destroying communities. Mm -hmm. So it's not only making money from this. They actually want to destroy the society and, and the young. In Iraq, there is a huge problem with drugs, which never existed during Saddam Hussein's day. Uh, I mean, I'm not a supporter of Saddam Hussein. Please don't misunderstand me. But there was no drugs. There were no drugs.
Thank you very much. I feel I have another whole fringe meeting coming on. Um, I'm going to be taking questions from the audience. There's a lot of hands. Friday, I'd just like to welcome um, His His Excellency Sheikh Fawaz, the Ambassador of Bahrain, who's just joined us, Your Excellency. Welcome. Now, the lights are very bright, so please stick your hands up. I'm going to take three questions at a time. And if I'm missing you, give me a wave because I'm blinded by the light. Um, I'll take the gentleman here first, um, then the gentleman in the front row, and, and then the lady there. If you can each ask your questions, and then I'll put it to the panellists. Sir, thank you. Uh, Madam Chairman, I'm Abdul Mateen. I'm a Sunni Muslim from Bangladesh. Um, we've heard uh, so many things, uh, but no one really understands the, uh, uh, the hate between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Um, there are Sunnis who would let their people starve, then feed any food tossed by a Shia. Now, they would much rather see a Jew as their friend than see a Shia as their friend. Now, uh, we heard uh, that uh, uh, Joe Biden backed Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, we saw a Sunni Muslim called Saddam Hussein ordered to death by a Shia judge and a Sunni did not beg a Shia judge for his life. Now, there was not a Jew in sight and the first Muslim to attack Israel was hanged by a Iranian-backed Shia judge. Now, this complexity between the Muslims uh, far outweighs the reality in Israel and Palestinian. We can find a solution to Israel and Palestinian conflict, but we'll never be able to find a solution to Shia and Sunni Muslims. How do we, how do we as the uh, as United Kingdom and the United States, get blamed for everything that happens in the Middle East when, when the situation is so hidden. Uh, the United Kingdom and the United States... I'm going to have to wrap have, you up because we've got yes, questions. I have a duty, uh, uh, but they're not the world's policemen. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? No. <laughs> we can't be able to do that. That's working better, thank you. Um, I'm Ian Proud, I'm an ex-MOD uh, media operations um, officer and being in the TA, so and I've been to the Middle East, and my father started his work in the Middle East. Uh, we have just about thrown away our main weapon for soft diplomacy in the Middle East, and that's the BBC World Service. I was at their um, fringe event yesterday on disinformation, <coughs> and eventually, after about six MPs, them on financing from the FCO um, about keeping them going, to which they got very wishy-washy answers. I then said, look, the current interest in the, in the Middle East and Ukraine is the use of nuclear weapons in the battlefield. Can you please get hold of a retired general who commanded an armoured division in the Cold War to explain what actually happened when you use a nuclear weapon, the effects on the people who send it? Oh, we can't do that, it's too difficult. I then said, well, how about uh, doing a review on Max Hastings' book on the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962? Oh, deep breath, because there was Khrushchev 
and uh, Kennedy face to face, and Khrushchev blinked first. Oh, we can't do that. Guy beside me, who was an intelligence officer from one of the five, five eyes countries, the BBC is so wishy-washy, I can't believe it. Please, can you get hold of all the MPs and tell them to shout out more money towards the BBC Wilson, because that's our main area of soft influence in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you. That's a point on BBC World Service. Oh, good morning. Uh, it's related in part towards the BBC uh, and misinformation. Um, the point was made is the same that we are seen as having rushed to help Ukraine, uh, but we didn't, weren't seen to help the Middle East with their problems. I remember back in the 1960s when there was the first threat to Kuwait, the UK rushed squadrons out to Kuwait and, and solved the problem. In 91, in the first Gulf War, First RAF squadrons, jets and people were touching down 12 hours after the problems were reported. Now at the moment in Ukraine, we have no NATO or European troops on the ground. So we are actually, historically, more willing to put lives and armaments to support people in the Middle East than we are in Eastern Europe because of the fear of Russia and nuclear weapons, whatever reason. Um, where that comes to the BBC, uh, it's been widely reported that while Ukraine is seen as winning the uh, propaganda war with the West, actually it's Russia which is massively winning the argument uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Telegraph across the world by portraying the whole war in Ukraine as a colonialist war and that uh, it's Russia who is standing up for the rights of all the people against oppression around the world. Um, are we losing the same war now in the Middle East that people are forgetting what we have done and what we are continuing to do? And are we at risk of seeing it turn into a, a Russian and Chinese spheres of influence where the UK is mis and the West is mistrusted? Thank you very much. Um, three excellent questions. Um, Sunni and Shia rivalry and hatred. Um, the BBC World Service soft power and are we fit to help Europe and are we getting our global comms wrong where Russia and China are getting them right? I'm going to come first to Zia. Yeah, I'll pick on the last because I think some of them were just comments which obviously there's not much for me to add. But um, I think we have actually learned a lot from 2014 in dealing with Russian misinformation, NATO, UK, US. We worked so hard this time around to spoil the narrative before even even happened. So I would completely disagree with your reading of what is happening. We dominate the narrative globally. Um, of course, there will always be somebody who will blame the West within the West, because if only we gave Russia what it wanted, this wouldn't have happened. Um, uh, but I disagree with that. Secondly, our soldiers have been training Ukrainian soldiers since 2015. So actually, yes, we're not fighting there, but um, our support, our engagement at all levels have been fundamental. Um, to what is happening. So um, so I kind of disagree on that front too. But look, there is definitely a China element to what we observe in regards to US response to Ukraine. I think I'm really impressed with how US and allies were able to come together to bring sanctions on Russia, um, tighten, le tighten legislations around it and take quick actions on it. I think that was a good exercise on a potential crisis with China in the near future. How would Europe and US could work together 
to economically, particularly economically and diplomatically, <coughs> ramp up pressure on China. Um, I think what we saw in Ukraine had a lot of that as an exercise. So there's a lot of lessons that have been learned. Um, and it's good to see US and it's good to see even Germany uh, not wanting to commit, but committing finally to actually do something. Um, but my concern is whether this Ukraine experience for the alliance, is it sustainable? Um, in a year or two when energy prices remain high, the elections are changing in Sweden, Italy and other places, um, in France, you, you know, what might happen next, etc. In Germany as well, they're under a lot of pressure. Would this change? Would we go back to what we were seeing two years ago? Or is this going to be a new phase in the Western alliance? What will happen to Joe Biden? Um, are we going to see a new Trump on horizon? A smarter version, which is very scary because the issues haven't disappeared. So I am cautious about how much the Ukraine effect on the Western alliance will last. But while it lasts, it's really great to see unity and response on a lot of these issues. Thank you. I'm going to try and keep questions and answers short because so many people have so many good points to make. Baria. I, I, the, the question of the media is a very long answer, so I'm going to skip it. But I do understand what you're trying to say. But I do agree also that we are def the West is definitely winning that, that war. I want to address the Shia Sunni aspect of what you are saying. In my country, there is Shia, Sunni, and luckily we have the Christians to... Sushis. <laughs> yeah. We're very lucky in Lebanon to have that. But I also know countries like Bahrain, for example, where there was a conflict between Shia and Sunni. It wasn't because of God. There is no God that tells you to go and kill the other because you are... And the conflict between Shia and Sunni, I'm not a religious person. I don't know the religion. But I cannot believe that something that happened thousands of years ago is going to make a conflict. So this is fabricated by Iran. It's Iran, it's the theology of the, that, are, that are ruling Iran now that came and said, we have a revolution that we want to export, not only to the region, by the way, but to the whole world. I'm glad they are not succeeding. And they did not succeed in countries like Bahrain or Saudi Arabia and other places. They're working on it. They keep on working on it, but luckily they are not succeeding. There is not a fundamental problem between the Shias and the Sunnis as such. I see them getting married together. I see them living together. And I, I think maybe your, your point of view is a, is a little bit one-sided. I'm sorry. Briefly, Simon. Uh, I would slightly disagree with Bari. I think the Sunni-Shia divide is really, really important. Uh, and really visceral, uh, and uh, it's historical, it's theological, it's about power, it's about influence, about division of, of goods, but at, at heart there is a, there is a strong theological element, and I think if you don't, not prepared to acknowledge that, you will. We are scarred by our experience in Northern Ireland. Catholics and Protestants, I'm very Catholic, you know, most of us have risen above it, thank God, we've educated and we've got, edu you know, we've, we've broken out of our, you know, communities that were locked in their identity, but not every other part of the world has, even in Northern Ireland. Uh, and, and the double civil war within Islam, which is often not things, obviously Sunni Shia, but the whole jihadist takfiri element, which again you'll be aware of in Bangladesh, etc. Uh, BBC, I couldn't be more horrified. Um, I have to say, however, the BBC editorial, BBC Arabic editorial, was very Muslim Brotherhood based. So it needs careful watching. But I think it was absolutely what I described as lovey petulance, when there's so much rubbish on the BBC that should be scrapped. And they would choose to they would choose to get rid of um, something that's so vital to to Britain's yeah, yeah. reputation. Uh, and the third one, for the lady, was was knowledge is important to, to, in in narratives. 
and your you know your ability to talk about Kuwait or the liberation of Kuwait again in in nineteen ninety one is really important when people come and say isn't it Garcia what about Ukraine and you can say ah may I remind you I found this at least an element of knowledge in the Balkans was useful when I had Albanians and Serbians telling me their version of history. So a little knowledge does go a very long way. And the last one is, I think you're absolutely right about the Russians dominating the media about their story. And I'm delighted that the reality on the ground cannot now begin to be kept from the Russians themselves. It won't mean that they'll all be anti-Putin or want, want the worst for their own country, deeply patriotic people. But the reality of the tactical and operational failures uh, and the carnage that's been wreaked on the great Russian army, uh, I think is beginning to, uh, beginning to sway that narrative. Thank you. Thank you. Now I have three questions, um, all in line at the back. I'm going to come first to uh, Thomas from The National, then unless the lights deceive me, Sir Gerald, and then the gentleman at the back. So Kate, if you get the microphone to Thomas at the front, and then we'll, then, then we'll work the mic back to the back row. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, bring a bit of fresh air and show there are other problems in the world aside from British tax cuts. Um, so I, I, I'm going to be rather selfish on the briefing at 11 o'clock and ask if I could just fire in three quick questions and get the answer straight away. Come on then, I'm going to make a short exception. Um, so I'd quite like to hear a bit more from General Simon on the expanding on the issue of Saudi Arabia influencing events in Iran, which I think is very interesting and what, what anecdotal you might have seen from that. And again, on yourself, of what you think British uh, military assets should be brought into the region in a, in a stronger fashion beyond sort of Dukham and uh, Bahrain and our naval assets there. Um, and then finally, uh, Dr. Zia, just briefly on the issue of Sweden joining, uh, Sweden and Finland joining, and what Turkey's position, NATO, and what Turkey's position might be on that uh, with June elections in mind next year. Thank you. I'll, I'll make an exception and say, Simon and uh, Dr. Z, if you can very briefly answer that, and then I will come to the very patient questioners behind him. Thank you. Just the first two. Thank you, James. Um, I, genuinely, I genuinely think what's going on in Iran and then the power of social media is, is, is sleeping across uh, into Iran. I'm still horrified by some of the double standards, the way people report on Saudi Arabia on an old stereotype, and, and basically the pass they give the Iranian regime, which is as ghastly as anything we, we've seen for a long time. And it's suppression of the, you know, the basic whatever's rights, freedoms, the suppression of the capability of the Iranian people, I think is awful. Uh, and, with, you know, one to watch. I don't think that's going to genie to get back in the bottle. Um, I also, just to back up Barry, Iran is an absolutely parasitic state. It's like some ghastly aliens thing. Goes into Baghdad, goes into Damascus, goes into Sanaa, goes into Beirut, and just sucks the life out of these, these communities. And it needs that. A, wants the resources, but it doesn't want healthy societies on its doorstep challenging it. Uh, your second one, James, you know, I'm delighted you mentioned the, the uh, base in Bahrain. Uh, it's great to see the ambassador of Bahrain here. Um, I think it was important. I, I, it, one of my proudest legacies as the Defence Senior Advisor was to get both, not just Bahrain, but the Gulf states and the British government to see that locking Britain back in a permanent basis into the security architecture of the Gulf was, was important for everybody's joint, joint interests. I think it's good for uh, deterring Iran, it's good for reassurance, uh, it's good for our status there and influence, it's our contribution to stability. Uh, we have got Dukan, we've got training bases in Kuwait, we train the Saudi Arabian National Guard. I wish we'd done more in UAE. I said to uh, now President Mohammed bin Zayed that we should have a British battalion stationed there. 
Uh, it's to do with prosperity as well as it is to do with uh, to do with um, uh, you know security or arms sales. It, you know, it's much bigger than that. Uh, and and we've, we're now moving our main armor training from Canada, where we went to in '71 when we were thrown out of Libya, and we were thrown out of Libya because we allowed the Abu Musa and the Greater great and Lesser Tun to be taken by the dreaded Persians. Gaddafi threw us out. We went to somewhere slightly less volatile, Canada. Um, and, uh, but we're, we're moving a large amount of it back to Oman. I think it's the right place to be. Again, I think it's somewhere where Britain has, has a, US, a USP, long-term relationships, that institutional memory and depth, which we always need to be invested in, trust again. Uh, so uh, I, I really urge the government and the MOD to continue to look at using our military, which is invested in by the British taxpayer, in support of our wider, wider national interests, and particularly in an area that we have such affection and such a, such depth, depth of depth of understanding relationship with, as the Middle East, the Gulf, obviously in particular. Thank you. Yeah, look, um, a stronger NATO is in Turkey's interest, so not the other way around, right? Turkey's worried about Black Sea be, before we were even worried about, so it doesn't want Russia dominating it. It's not happy with developments in Ukraine and etc. But Finland is not even a question, right? So Finland actually kind of gets stuck with the Turkish-Swedish tension. So in principle, even Finnish officials were like, I don't think there's actually much problem here. We can address some of their concerns. It boils down to a particular series of decisions in Swedish government coalition, which is now changing, um, that took decisions to bring arms embargo on Turkey, relate with Kurdish militants in Syria, and take a much more proactive loud stand on it because of their own political formation. Um, if the new Swedish government doesn't continue that, which signs are it might not, and already the arms embargo has been lifted already last week or two weeks ago and Turkey's request for extraditing some of these Kurdish militants and, and some of these people related to the cleric Fethullah Gulen and etc. Um, obviously Sweden won't be able to do much of that because there's law and court and rights and entitlements and etc. Um, but I think they're trying to do their best. A lot of it boiled down to Swedish diplomacy failing to prepare its own government and to prepare this conversation with Ankara. If you're entering a military alliance with a nation, and Turkey is one of that alliance, so you can't see it as an optional extra, you can't also just support a militant organization It's fighting. So there is, US did that, it's still a sour point in conversation. But I do think Finland is not an issue. I think it will be solved. Um, but what Ankara wants is it doesn't want fate accomplice given to it and it doesn't want people treating it in such a way. For example, Greece made an issue with what the name of Macedonia and other members joining for like years and years and years. So from Ankara's perspective, it's like, why is it always us facing this pressure when we raise our need? Um, I think they will eventually accept that and I think Sweden will eventually find a compromise because ultimately there is how far President Erdogan can go to push this to get some leverage. I think we're already at the end of it. Thank you. May I say to the other two questions, thank you for your patience. We'll come to you now. So it's Gerald and the gentleman. Yeah. <coughs> thank you. Very much, uh, thank you. Uh, as the Protestant uh, Minister of International Security, <laughs> I had the great privilege of being escorted by the Catholic general you see before you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, it was just a joy to behold the influence that the United Kingdom had uh, through uh, General Simon and others in the region. And following James's question a moment ago, 
Can I just ask uh, the general, do we have sufficient uh, numbers in our military to be able to invest in the soft power of which you speak and of which, uh, uh, I would, which was visible to me and for which I was in part responsible? Because I am concerned that reducing the numbers as we are, we're just simply not going to have the personnel. And then to the, uh, uh, to the other two um, fascinating contributions they both made. May I say, uh, ask you this question, to what extent would ramping up our military uh, influence the people, and particularly those young people of whom His Royal Highness spoke, uh, who do not understand the contribution that we've made. And the General will remember that when I um, was, had a, a meeting with uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, he was protesting about the United Kingdom imposing sanctions on Bahrain. Uh, with which, of course, I entirely agree with him. But he jabbed me in the, in, in the chest and he said, we don't expect the Americans to understand. We do expect the United Kingdom to understand. You've been here for 200 years. I think we're in real danger, the panel suggesting we're in real danger of losing influence in a vital area. And we must not neglect the threat that, the, that has been outlined. And to what extent ramping up our military will give that reassurance. So, Gerald, thank you very much indeed. And uh, the question at the back has been extremely patient. Hi there, my name is Mustafa Field. I'm the director for Chess World Case Forum. Um, I think the framing around the Shia Sunni conflict has is, is been very simplified. And, and also, I find it, when we look at the Bahrain context, for example, we see that the, you know, we saw at that time a rise of uh, cause of democratization in the Middle East, and of course, Bahrain is one of our allies. So do the citizens of Bahrain uh, not deserve that right of democratization to have you know equal rights and equal citizens, and that that, that double standards that we have, uh, you know, does have an impact. And we're not calling the topping of regimes or changes of regimes, but we do need to think about actually how how the weaponization of using uh, sectarian tropes by um, you know you know the states in the Middle East. Um, can cause division and tensions and artificial tensions and we know that uh, each, each citizen doesn't have an equal right so if someone in Bahrain would call, if they were Shia they might not have the same right as a Sunni in terms of working defense intelligence or in other positions and that's something that we need to as Brits have questioned think about how that, does that have changed and how can we shape a much more positive narrative so that we encourage freedom of religion and belief in different parts of the Middle East um, just want to call on some other issues. I mean, we, we saw that the coalition forces that invaded Iraq, they created the sectarian structures in the so-called democracy that we established that brought Shia, Sunni, and Kurdish leaders at fault. And we didn't set a template. You know, naturally there was division. We're not going to say Saddam played on that for years, men like many other Arab leaders. But we didn't create a roadmap towards building a forged identity. Values, uh, by, by, uh, you know, political parties that have values, and so we failed in our interventions, and we're not taking that into account in terms of our responsibility. So we played against the Shia Sunni Kurdish uh, agenda of often and, and creating. We didn't learn the le lessons of Lebanon. Uh, we just replicated it in Iraq, which you know both might my, my, both might be seen as failed states today. And I, I just come back to you know. The, you know, we 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 always always talking about you know Iran and threats, etc. Iran came when there was a security of, uh, you know, we see Iraq as an ally, 
when Daesh was 40 kilometers from Baghdad, the US allies failed. They didn't bring weapons into, they didn't support the Iraqis against um, So that, that a vacuum to be created to allow other entities to come in, allow Turkey to come up to the north, allow Iran to come into Baghdad. And so that's, that's just worth really thinking about. Can, you know, that's why many people in the West Finally, just a final point, I, I agree with the Freedom Origin page, so, so important, please. Um, you know, we, we organised a big conference on this in July, and we need to be projecting a much more positive value, in, 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 and that's our soft power. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so, we've got the West's role in sectarianism, the West's role in it, um, and can we be back east of Suez? I'm going to come to Baria first, um, and then the rest. We have until 11.15 for questions. There is still more time for questions, and I'll ask our panellists to keep their answers as short as possible, and question as short as possible, so we can get as much as possible in. Baria. So, which questions do you want me to answer? If you, if you would like to, any, perhaps on sectarianism. Which is the best Lebanese restaurant in London? This is. So many. One major question. So you, yeah, yeah. So I, I, want to take two points that the gentleman at the end made, which is about Bahrain. Uh, because I was there uh, when, when this thing happened, and I have actually family living in Bahrain, and I've been going to Bahrain for many, many years. And it's almost a replica of what happens in Lebanon. When I grew up in Lebanon, I had no idea there was Shia Sunni. It wasn't talked about in my days like that. There were Muslims and there were the Christians, and we knew the Christians how there, there, there was the Catholics, the Protestants, etc. Because of the holidays we had in school, it was not discussed. And and at that time, the the Christian, the Muslims had their Eid, their festivities at the same time. I tell you, I when I go to Bahrain, I have a brother living there who has also uh, become Bahraini. His house is right almost in the middle of a village that is Shia village, okay? It's absolutely fine, people go and come. There was a problem in 9-11. In, in people manifested it and they went and, but the, I, I must say this, that when I go, I see uh, ministers who are Shia. Actually, the Shia community in Bahrain are even richer than the Sunnis, if you like. The big businesses in Bahrain are owned by the Shias. When it comes to the army and the intelligence, and this is, has to be addressed with, uh, I, I think, some kind of trust between the communities, which takes a lot of time. I also know generals in the army that are Shias, and, and so, but I don't know the intricacy of the particular army in, in there. So I, I think this is a little bit of a media hype, and I was there and I was talking to my colleagues. I remember, uh, God bless his, Robert Fisk came to me and said, oh, did you know that the Saudis are actually taking the demonstrators in fridges alive? I said, really? Like, I was appalled. I was there with them. I was reporting. So I called, and I, and everybody made fun of me when I was asking this question. It's sad. I'm a journalist. 
And I'm saddened to say that we live in an atmosphere of media where, where the media is directed because of policies. In Lebanon, Hezbollah media machine is the strongest. So this, if you like, I can, I'm happy to talk to you after that. By the way, just to say, there's going to be tea and coffee and book signings, so there's going to be a lot of conversations that will be had. Perhaps if we can save the lengthy conversations for then and keep this really, really short. Yeah. I, I just Simon. want to address oh. Iraq very quickly. There is a big misunderstanding about what went on as far as ISIS is concerned and the role that the Hashd al-Shaabi played. A big misunderstanding. Can we read about it in your book, so, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would be actually very advisable. Simon. Yeah, undoubtedly, our failures in, in Iraq, and we've got to you know, fess up, was a disaster for Iraq itself and the region. And the unlooked for consequence, which is the last thing the Americans wanted to, was to empower Iran. Iran, however, has used its, um, uh, has used the, 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 the Shia communities. Uh, it's generated a sense of fear. It's, it, it, it also reflects a sense of fear among Shia communities about, about the more radical elements of Sunnism. So there is all this interlinking. And then there's an ethnicity. Uh, and it, people who are in Mosul will remember that uh, uh, the jihadi fighters in Mosul were shouting at the Hashd al-Shab Safavi. And unless you understood Safavis, you know, Shah Ismail, conversion of Iran, 1502, you get it. Um, it's back to a little bit of history, a little bit of history, the respect we owe the region to understand the history. Um, but your point, and then the sectarian structures, I'm with you on that. Um, I just want to take up Gerald's, inevitably, he's leading the witness. Um, of course the army's too small. You know, if you are sensible about army, navy, air force, you then use that, you reinvest what you've invested in your armed forces, their sunk costs, in order to pursue wider, wider British national interest. And as Patrick Sanders quite rightly said about Ukraine, you can't cyber yourself across a river. And you can't do defence engagement without the basis of personal relationships. You can't do personal relationships unless you're physically there. Fly in, fly out diplomacy is not great. It's why we have embassies. It's why we have defence attaches. But by goodness, we could do a lot more if we used our military assets on a, on a, on a basis. And I'll just finish with one quick note, because when I talked to... My, uh, President Mohammed bin Zayed, who gave me the same story, you should know us better. His, his opposite number said, well, our problem, Simon, is unfortunately in this part of the world, we're doomed to like you. And he didn't mean me personally, he meant the British. Uh, but you can't just rely on old, old relationships, memories, trust. You've got to keep investing. But I, I did think the, the wry way said, we're, we're rather doomed to like you. Um, I said, we've got to do better than that. Thank you. Now, I'm going to try and fit in. There's still got a few outstanding questions. So I'm going to go for um, four questions in this round. And I'm going to try and fit in another round. Gentlemen at the back, then to here, then the gentleman here, and then the gentleman in the front row. If you can keep it brief, we'll get more questions in. Thank you very much. My name is Jonathan Rush. Uh, I'm a Bucks County Councillor. By the sounds of it, I'm probably the only bit of Tory politician here today, which is sad. Uh, when I was a young man, I was I lived in Iran for a year before the Islamic Revolution, and then during the revolution, and then for about six months afterwards, um, my landlord turned out to be a key figure in the revolution. He uh, was personally in charge of Ayatollah's personal security. Um, I was having a discussion with him not long after the success the success of the revolution uh, about nuclear weapons, and he said to me, Jonathan. You have to realise that uh, Pakistan has nuclear weapons, uh, Iraq, uh, Russia has nuclear weapons, 
Israel has nuclear weapons, and in the Gulf, the Seventh Fleet has nuclear weapons. So, of course, we need nuclear weapons too, if only to defend ourselves. By the way, that conversation is described in my novel, My Persian Girl. I mean, the panel had plugged their book, I thought I'd plug mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was wondering uh, whether the panel thinks that the uh, defensive mentality forms part of Iran's policy on nuclear weapons. Thank you. Thank you. Then, the gentleman in the corner there, briefly, if I may ask. Yeah, morning. Nice quick one. Um, so I'm a student of international relations up in St Andrews in Scotland and next year I've got to decide um, which region I want to specialise in. <laughs> and um, one thing which I'm getting quite a lot from lecturers is the idea that Russia and China might distract from the Middle East in the future and that the Middle East might no longer be considered the centre of international relations at which it once was. So would you agree with that or not? Thank you. Then, gentlemen... Well done, Kedge, because Sterling work with the microphone. Thank you very much. Uh, Dean Tyler from Bank Trust. We're a UK-based investment bank, only focusing on emerging markets. Uh, short question, uh, GCPOA, how important is that to removing the blockage of a formation of government in Lebanon and the first steps to some sort of normality in Lebanon in, in the next months or years? I wish. And finally. Yes, um, I'm a retired um, banker. Uh, living abroad with conservatives abroad um, and I have a question for Rania because I think she's really the only person here who has understood the human situation except if I can pause from them absolutely absolutely I'm married to a Lebanese who also went to the American University before the war, during the war, and finally fled the country. She went back this summer only to find her to buy lunch in Beirut. You need a million Lebanese pounds. You take it in a carrier bag. Is this a failed state? It's horrific. So my question is actually about, more about immigration, or rather the refugees in Lebanon. Driving around Beirut in the summer, he saw a long queue of people queuing up the United Nations handouts. And she asked the chauffeur, oh, who are these people? Oh, they're Syrians, they're refugees here in this country who are given $200 worth of food and water to survive for a month. And then she asked the driver, well, what do they do with it? Oh, of course, they take it into the market and sell it. So my question to you is, is the United Nations program in Lebanon doing any good for the West at all? Thank you. So thank you very, very much for your question. Barry, can I come to you first? And I'm sorry to have to ask to be brief. Yeah. I, I, I'm deeply saddened by what's happening in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon has always been the jewel of, of the Middle East and, and the area. Uh, it's, it's a failed state. People are hungry. The Middle East, the, the middle class, which was the majority of the Lebanese, does not exist 
uh, I would say 80% of the population is just above the poverty line or under the poverty line. Uh, the, the rich even lost a lot of their money. And all this, and I mean it, is not only because of Hezbollah, but Hezbollah is the major culprit with the presidency that we have, which are the allies of Hezbollah. And as I said, anywhere you go in the area where, where Iran is there, there is a failed state. Yemen, Syria, uh, Iraq, ev everywhere. I want to say there is no way there can be a president, a new president in Lebanon, or a new government in Lebanon. We, we have a government that has resigned, as, as we know, unless Hezbollah works and agrees to it. And you can imagine, if we get another president like the one we have, who is completely pro-Hezbollah and does Hezbollah's bidding, then I'm afraid the country is in grave, grave danger. As far as the UN is concerned, they do help, they try to help, but it is overwhelming the number of refugees that we have. There is fatigue in the country and in the region. There is more than nine million, Simon, Syrian refugees. It's more than nine now, now even. So it, 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 it's a huge problem, Lebanon, huge. It really saddens me, but it's, it's the truth. And I don't see a light now. I'm going, to very, um, I'm going to ask, there are lots more questions. I'm going to ask if you take them offline. You'll have a chance to chat with our speakers over book signing and coffee. Um, so, Simon, I'll just ask you and then Zia to finish off answering the final questions that we've had. Yeah. Simon. Uh, on the Iran issue, uh, I think defense, uh, it goes back to empathy. It goes back to self-awareness of seeing ourselves through other people's eyes. Um, the tragedy, I think, in, with Iran, or one of the tragedies, the Americans, and again, I, I'm a great transatlanticist, so this is comment, not criticism are not great historical people. So for them, Iran is locked in this 1979 hostage crisis, black turbans. So every time you challenge Iran, you challenge their sense of themselves as a great nation and a great former empire uh, and, and, and a lack of understanding. So I do absolutely believe that some of that instinct for a nuclear weapon is part of a, de a defensive mechanism. I also know the declaration is un-Islamic to have a nuclear weapon, but if we look at Pakistan, that's a different thing. So I think it's important. I think we haven't ever, we, we, none of us have touched really on the Arab Spring. I thought that was very interesting. It goes back to His Royal Highness's talk, uh, you know, questions about demography. And the West's idea that this was an extension of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, and not factoring in the realities of the culture in which a revolution was taking place. Iran before Saudi Arabia, uh, sorry, not Saudi Arabia, um, uh, the Middle East, the reform movement in Iran, uh, in Saudi Arabia at the moment, and coalitions and capacities for manoeuvre. Uh, and on the Russia-China one, I'll just go back to my opening statement. You may not be interested in the Middle East. The Middle East is interested in you. There's a hu huge human dimension. You've heard it very starkly from a number of pa panellists and, and, and member of the, uh, a member of the audience. Uh, but, but equally, as I said, it's absolutely vital. And you might wish to be distracted, not you, by Russia and China. But don't allow yourself to not focus on the Middle East. Even I know the Mercator map is a bit of an odd thing to look at, but it's called the Middle East for a, region, a reason. And it just links Asia, Africa, Eurasia, Europe. It's, it's absolutely vital. And if it goes horribly wrong, it's very volatile, there will be consequences. Thank you, Simon. And finally, Zia. Yeah, look, um, 
yeah, keep studying. I mean, I love studying international relations, but I think where I see as a geek in practice, you know, who works in defense, but is a geek with a beard and degrees behind him, um, I think we do need new generation of scholars asking new questions. I think a lot of conversations on Middle East and the world are still framed by 70s, 80s, at best 90s references, and the world is not that anymore. Um, like you've seen a lot of discussions on Ukraine, realism, nuclear weapons, which I'm like, what are you even talking about, right? So, um, so I would highly encourage you, we do need a new generation of people, because I think even in this conversation, there's an element of, uh, you know, the record spinning, but the world has moved on. Um, um, and how do we imagine that, analyze that, is going to be a big challenge. I'll end there. Thank you very much indeed. We've, we've heard very honest insights from the Middle East of a perception of the West as our friends letting us down. We've heard perceptions from the Middle East that the West has double standards. We've heard don't forget other issues. And we've also most powerfully heard that all these strategic things actually have a human cost. But whenever discussing the Middle East, I'm very struck by, and Simon, I'm going to get you to remind us, struck by something that is at the beginning of Simon's book. Simon, what, what did you open your book with? It was good. It was simply, I just was reminded, I used to lecture uh, on, the, on the Cunard, I'm actually about to do it next week, uh, about the Middle East, three-hour lectures. So right from the death of the prophet, um, or start today, right by... Anyway, the only reason I, I leave that is a delightful gentleman came up to me at the end and he said, oh, General, we, we, we've really enjoyed it. We've really enjoyed your, 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 your lectures. It, it's very complex, isn't it? It's still, I'm, I'm still a bit confused. And I said, well, you probably aren't. He said, but thanks to you, at a much higher level. <laughs> and then we looked at each other and I said, no, no, this is the Middle East. That might be, as a Westerner, about the best you can hope to be, confused but at a higher level. Anyway, thank you. So that might become the motto of CMEC. I hope you're all still confused, but at a much higher level. Thank you very much. Please stay around for tea and coffee. Uh, chat to disagree with our panellists and have the opportunity to buy and sign a book. Thank you all very, very much for coming. Thank you.